Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. My name is Seyrun. I live in Reykjavik, Iceland. I read The Guardian every morning. I realize that this is something that I would like to pay for. It's a service I value. It's journalism I respect. The Guardian brings me the quality I like. So I realized, hey, this is something I, I should be a part of. Hello, my name is Brian and I live in Norwich. I decided to become a supporter of the Guardian newspaper because I like the quality of its journalism. And I also felt it was time to make a stand because I'm getting tired of the journalism I'm seeing in other newspapers that are owned by rich owners, where there is a lot of bias in their editorials. I hope this inspires some of you to become supporters too and in your own small way, make a stand. Hi, my name is Wesley. I live in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I recently decided to become a Guardian supporter because it's well one of the few news sources that I feel is still delivering accurate news. You know, it feels like I can trust the Guardian. For me, that's, I think, the most important thing. And especially when they said we don't want to do too much advertisements and we don't want to become dependent upon other people can, that can manipulate the news, I felt that it was good to support our democracy. If, like Sigrun, Wesley and Brian, you would like to join the growing number of readers who support our independent journalism, then go to gu.com slash support slash podcast. The Guardian. If I was in charge of the early years curriculum, I would not make children's school ready as it's currently understood. I would make school children ready. I'd turn it around and say, what do children need? I understand that learning to read and write, of course, is massively important. But I think we put the burden on too early. I think we should be looking at making them grow and become properly fully fledged children before we start teaching them how to become adults. That's Guardian supporter Phoebe, and we'll hear more from Phoebe later. Hello, and thanks for joining us for We Need to Talk About. Today, we're going to focus on education. We've got a great panel who are as ready as ever to answer lots of Guardian supporter questions. And we'll certainly have a good chat about what seems to be going wrong in education. But in the spirit of this podcast, we also want to look for solutions. So what can education systems around the world learn from each other? New ideas, old ideas, perhaps. Positive change. I'm Lee Glendening, Executive Editor for Membership at The Guardian, and our panel today includes Andreas Schleicher, the Director of Education and Skills at the OECD in Paris. Andreas launched the PISA program in 2000, which is a global test comparing the performance of different education systems. And we'll talk about that later on. You also have a book, Andreas, called World Class, How to Build a 21st Century School System. 
Melissa Benn, writer-journalist and campaigner for high-quality comprehensive education. Melissa was a founder member of the Local Schools Network and a chair of Comprehensive Future, an all-party group lobbying for the phasing out of selection at 11 and fair school admissions. Her latest book is called Life Lessons, The Case for a National Education Service. And Alex Beard, author and educator. Alex was an English teacher in a London comprehensive and he now works with Teach for All and travels the world in search of practices that will transform learning. He's written a book about it called Natural Born Learners. That's a lot of knowledge on one panel. Welcome, everybody. We're going to do um, things slightly differently in this episode because we've found that when you talk about education, there are so many different issues that are interwoven. Uh, so here are three Guardian supporters who'll talk for about three minutes on some of the key challenges that we're facing. Here's Emma, Will and Lydia. My name's Emma Garden and I'm a design technology teacher. My question is, how can we take the politics out of our education system? I'd like to see policies that are driven by experts and research and what we need in the future for our children. And there's recently been an abundance of exciting research such that we know so much more about how children learn, yet in schools that's always playing against just trying to meet the needs of government league tables or Ofsted criteria. If you look at Finland and Singapore, they usually both come at the top of the tables in the PISA rankings, but both have very different educational styles. But what is similar about both countries is they have less government intervention and show significantly more respect and give more status to teachers and the education system. Hi, my name is Will Goldsmith. I'm a school leader in West London in a secondary school. Myself and my colleagues were exploring various different ideas about moving away from GCSEs as they currently stand at some point in the future. All the studies show that high-stakes exams are not very conducive to learning, certainly not for a significant proportion of students who perform better over a significantly longer period of time. When we think about the way that the world works and when we think about the way also that learning works, learning is a much more gradual and progressive thing than merely something one produces in an hour. And so we really want to look at something which is about allowing all students to learn, first of all, and then secondly, for them to be able to demonstrate what they've learned accurately. The models to develop an alternative are to do with teacher assessments and particularly portfolios or electronic portfolios, which go the entire lifespan at secondary school of individual students. And we're currently looking at how that could operate in a, in a robust way. What do the panel think the future is for assessment and curriculum for 14 to 16-year-olds, both in the British context and also further afield? Hi, I'm Lydia, and I've been a teacher in a special school for 25 years. And during this time, I've also provided outreach to mainstream schools, um, supporting children with special educational needs. My concern is, over the years, I've seen a dramatic decline in the recognition of individual pupil needs. And this not being a criticism of individual schools, but rather an expectation from governments that all pupils should meet certain criteria at given points in education. And clearly, pupils are not always able to for a multitude of reasons. Apart from the stress on staff, the most damning evidence I have witnessed is a growing increase of pupils at young ages coming to think of themselves as not good enough or failures. And I ask myself whether this could be driving the rise in behaviour problems and mental health problems that we're seeing in our pupils at the moment. Self-esteem is obviously something that is crucial for successful learning. And I understand the needs for standards to ensure high expectations and access to excellent quality first teaching for all. 
But I feel we need to radically transform how we accept and support pupils working at different levels and speeds. So there's really a lot to dig into there. Let's start with Emma's point about depoliticising the education system. Andreas, which governments around the world are letting educators drive policies? And in the UK, that relationship can often feel antagonistic with teachers not feeling that they're really being listened to. So how do you think that these countries got to a point where they can trust educators to feel that they have more autonomy? I think it's a lot to do with professional ownership where you have education systems like uh, Finland or Singapore that were cited here The role of government is not weaker, but it's all focused about enabling teachers to take ownership of professional practice, giving teachers space to become researchers, designers, develop solutions, mobilizing knowledge, shared experiences, something that we do in many other professions. And it's also something that makes teaching in those countries intellectually more attractive. And that is a natural way of taking the politics out. The stronger the profession, the less sort of there is a need for government to regulate or prescribe and so on. And I, I do think uh, that's the kind of trend that we clearly see. And in professional autonomy in a collaborative culture really is the key. What you also have in those countries is typically a lot of space and time for teachers to work with each other in professional learning communities, in research groups, in teacher competitions. So there's a lot in on, on collaboration in there. And I think that's a natural way of of building this. I don't want to start on a negative note, but I think the direction in which our system in England has developed over the last 30 years, and particularly over the last 10 years, has been in entirely the wrong direction. We've had far too much central government interference and prescription to the point, and I know we're going to talk about the curriculum later, that we've had politicians actually writing the curriculum mm. from 1988 through to 2012, 2013. And I think there have been other developments in England in particular that have taken us in the wrong direction. I mean, if you look at the really good systems globally, Finland and Canada are two I'm thinking of. They have strong local government, strong municipal role in the development of education, whereas in England we've seen the demise and the decimation of local government to a point where it's quite a crisis. And I think there's something else you have to say about the English system. It's become incredibly partial politically. Schools Week, which is an educational journal, did a, a very interesting report on a Downing Street reception. And the schools that were invited and the educators that were invited by the government represented the free school and academy movement, and very much not the maintained schools, which are still the majority of schools in our country. So so I think there's a particular partiality that has led to hostility, antagonism, and more importantly, a lack of creativity, collaboration, innovation in our system, which you talk about that's so important. I'm interested, Melissa, in how you think we get beyond that in the UK. I remember going to Ontario a few years ago when everybody was excited about it as a sort of education superpower and going to speak to teachers, to speak to parents, to speak to students, speaking to the ministry, and they were all completely aligned in the aims they said they were working towards in the Ontario system. They're kind of undertaking these gradual reform programs. I think the big focus at the time was maths, you know, maths for stem careers in the future and it was incredible it sort of sat around 10 different tables with different groups of people and everybody had this in mind and it felt like not just the political parties but also the system but also civil society had the same aims for the kids of that particular province in Canada 
Mm. And what do you think it takes to get to that in the UK from where we are? Well, actually, I, I've looked into Alberta, which is another province, and they similarly had some really exciting ideas about the role of local government, different, you know, heads would work together, they would rotate around schools. When the charter school movement began in Canada, unlike America, where it's taken a grip and the academy and free school movement here, the local government went to parents said, what would you like to see in schools and reform them as a result? So that's all the good stuff. How you get it here, I I think a bit like Finland, which had 20 years of conversations before it reformed its system. I think we have to start having conversations about how we're going to do it differently and take it out of the short-term political cycle in terms of winning elections. I think that's been tremendously damaging. So if I were elected Prime Minister at the next election, which is not likely, you'll be sorry to hear, (laughs) I would immediately call everybody who's involved in education together and say, here are some commonly agreed problems. Let's start to think and let's learn from the work of Andreas and Pisa and so on how we can move our system in a better direction. I think um, it's it's about the institutions, obviously, but it's also about the image and role that we see for teachers. Is the role of a teacher, you know, to deliver a curriculum, or is the role of the teacher to be actually a research and designer themselves? You know, and that has to do with work organization. Like when I look at England, the I would almost say obsession with smaller classes is actually driven out what's most important is the time that teachers have to do other things than teaching. Basically, English teachers teach. If I look to a teacher in Shanghai, they teach between 11 and 16 hours per week, but they work actually more than a British teacher even. And they spend a lot of time with individual students, actually trying to understand how students learn. They work with parents. They spend a lot of time with their colleagues. And for them, professional autonomy wouldn't mean, you know, I do what I like. It it means I do what I know is right in the name of my profession. That's basically the ownership of practice that you see there. But the image of a teacher is they're not, you know, you're going to deliver what we have thought out for you. It's a very industrial sort of, there's a lot of effort in England and many other countries to put ideas into schools rather than trying to get the good ideas out of the classroom into the system. And I think that's what we can learn from. But it, it really requires a different work organization that is much less industrial, much less tailoristic. And again, you can also see what people did here when they were, you know, increasing number of social problems. Okay, now we hire a social worker, a psychologist. If I go to uh, Japan or Finland, actually, that's the role of teachers, to engage with a diversity of issues, to understand that students learn differently and to embrace diversity in social backgrounds, cognitive learning styles. And they have a deep belief that every student can learn. And they do whatever it takes to facilitate this. And they have the space and the resources to do so. And I think, and this is, by the way, nothing to do with money. They're not spending more. They're spending their resources very differently you know? The United States is actually a great example. Teachers are paid very poorly. Their job is not very attractive. But actually, the United States is among the countries spending most on education. So how they can they square the circle? Well, you know, they pay teachers badly. They have rather small classes. They only spend every, – only every second dollar arrives in the classroom. So a lot of money gets just, you know, squandered on other things. So at the end of the day, that is a choice about how they invest their resources. Can I say something positive, which is I think, having observed the education scene over 30 or 40 years, there is now a widespread belief that every child can learn. There mm-hmm. just isn't the organisation and resources in the system to allow teachers to do that. 
and I think a, a, another backward step we've taken is to deprofessionalize teachers here and to control them to within an inch of their life so that actually some of the most interesting young teachers like Alex here <laughs> or Lucy Crean who wrote a book about um, global systems start out in the system get discouraged quite early on I think it's fair to say and decide to go and see how other people do it well we need people like you staying in the system yeah that's right I just think about my own experience as a beginning teacher in the early days you know I understood my role within the machinery of the system first of all so we talked on day one would have our staff meeting where we'd look at the exam criteria that the kids were working towards then get out the sheets of data and they were all traffic lights in green yellow red depending on whether those children were on track to achieve those grades or not we analyzed that and then sort of backwards plan from the grades that we needed the kids to get they all had to get a c grade and then sort of figured out our learning plan based on that and it felt exactly like a tailorist factory model i felt like a teacher as management consultant figuring out how efficiently how most efficiently I could get the learning into the heads of the kids so they could get those grades and at the time being a new teacher I didn't really question it or think twice about it but it certainly wore me down over time and it didn't help me to fall in love with the profession it's a problem for lots of teachers experience today with the way that our examination system particularly at the GCSE level influences everything that happens in classroom despite what our curriculum might say or despite what we might hear from central government about the importance of teachers and so on we're sort of behold to this system that works towards GCSE exam criteria and I don't think it needs to be the case I may be a bit utopian in my thinking but I believe that in the 21st century there's no more important profession than that of teachers if you look at all of the research that points to the future of the professions or what we're going to need to be able to do to be creative to be critical thinkers to work together those are really human qualities and they need to be developed by people and with people and teachers in the ultimately going to be the people that develop that human potential there's going to be nothing more important than human capital that's a um, a difficult term but like you know people's ability to be happy to 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 work to find their own purpose in lives and so i think we could reimagine the role of the teacher and it will require first of all removing some of the measures of bureaucratic compliance that they have to undergo perhaps paying them a bit better but imagine teachers in the future who are experts maybe in the latest neuroscience or who are experts at using bits of ai in their classroom to outsource some aspects of the teaching process or deep subject experts who spend time really knowing their subject or become coaches of groups of kids and how they work together because they have the latest um, insights in psychology in their toolkit and you could imagine the most fantastic career of incredible professionalism incredible deep learning that would be so rewarding but at the moment we're preventing that from happening i I was just gonna say i find it incredible that alex could describe as utopian the idea that teachers are subject experts i mean i my daughters have now just recently passed through the school system but the difficulty in recruiting experts in certain subjects i mean there's such a shortage of physics teachers and so on so i'm not criticizing you i'm saying it should be a given that they're deep subject experts i think we need to ask ourselves what's cause and effect i do believe that you know perhaps teaching is becoming financially more attractive but it's becoming intellectually less attractive Mm. and that's why the subject matter experts find other areas more rewarding to work in and uh, in a way if you think about the what's the role of teachers is to you know help 
young people love new things, be mm. curious about this, develop. And I, I do think the social emotional aspects of this are, are, are critically important. And if teachers feel it's all about subject matter content, then probably they will find other areas where subject matter content is actually more interesting. This point on the role of teachers, Alex, that you talk about what you can bring as a classroom teacher. But then, Melissa, you've written in relation to the point about the curriculum, uh, Michael Grove, our former education secretary, effectively reworking the history curriculum in England. It should should teachers be involved in writing the curriculum? You know, is that something that, that, that they would want to do? Is that a way to bring more value to, to the experience, Alex, you talk about? What do you think? Can, can I start with the political? For this discussion, I, I look back just at the recent history of attempts to change our curriculum. And it does touch on what we were talking about earlier, the relationship between politicians and experts. So in 2004, the new Labour government appointed um, the former chief inspector, Mike Tomlinson, to provide a new framework for curriculum and qualifications and he spent two years reporting came up with a brilliant set of ideas that would still work and it was rejected in 2005 in 2009 the Labour government asked Robin Alexander and the Cambridge Primary Review Group to come up with new ideas for the primary curriculum and it was rejected for political reasons and you know this is one of the problems with our system and yet after the coalition came to power we found the history curriculum rewritten by Michael Gove in fact because of public debate involving all sorts of academics that challenged his view of English history they had to revise it and it was better but that that's the political story which is a sad one, I think. It seems to me completely obvious that teachers should have a role in deciding what the curriculum is. But I also think that there should be a role for civil society as well in that. You know, I think we all have a stake as a society in what the kids that are growing up in today's age learn so they can succeed in the future. Like we have sets of values that we care about. We have, I mean, maybe in the kind of when we talk about expertise and domain specific knowledge, I might try and leave that to experts. But the broad brushstrokes of what is required in a education in the 21st century should be decided based on our shared understanding of what is needed at the global level. And Andreas writes beautifully about this, but also about what's needed at a national level, who we are, and also locally. Like, what are the potential opportunities that exist within a community? for employment what are the values that exist in a place what's the history and culture of a place that needs to be incorporated into the curriculum I had an an amazing meeting when I was doing the research for my my book with this guy called uh, Joshua Wong and he's a student leader in Hong Kong and he's basically launched the umbrella pro-democracy movement and it all started out due to a curriculum change so the Chinese government wanted to change this subject that they had in Hong Kong high schools which is all about developing free thinking critical thinking skills collaboration all about telling a certain story of democracy and the Chinese government wanted to replace it with uh, a different sort of history curriculum and that's what sparked the initial protest he basically organized a bunch of his 14 and 15 year old friends he was only 14 years old when he did this handed out flyers hundreds of thousands of people gathered outside the Hong Kong Central Assembly to prevent this change in the curriculum like curriculum is so important and I think that we all need to be engaged in it I, I really believe also in this kind of whole of society approach we need to have a good understanding for what the future will require for people now teaching people for jobs that have not been created to use technologies that have not been invented to address social problems that we can't imagine and it's so much easier to educate children for our past than their future and that's exactly what happens when you make it a political process and clearly teachers have a role in this I mean they are the ones who know how students learn and how students learn best and so that is one aspect but at the same time the world of work should have a role in you know 
know, how do we anticipate the evolution of scale demand? I, I think that's very important to have a conversation. In fact, that's one of the things that we see in uh, actually emerging in many countries, that civil society, different stakeholders actually work on the articulation of, of curricula and educational standards. And then, of course, government has an important role to moderate that process. I think that's, a, that's course, very yeah. clear. And it's also very important to make this coherent over time. And one of the biggest liabilities in education is that we typically, you know, accumulate stuff in curricula. It's very easy to add things to the curriculum and very difficult, takes a lot of courage to take something out because immediately parents will say, my child no longer learns what I studied and that was so important or they learn things that I didn't learn. So I education is a very kind of conservative social system. So it takes courage. But the result of this has been that we have today quite kind of inch-deep sort of mile-wide approach to learning, which then means teachers have to move through a lot of stuff without having the time to teach fewer things in greater depths. And, and I mean, you ask yourself in a mathematics lesson, why do we teach trigonometry or calculus? You ask mathematicians, is that the essence of mathematics that's going to help you to think like a mathematician? And they will tell you, no, actually, it's one specific application of math, but it's not the foundation of mathematics. You ask people in the world of work, you know, you really need trigonometry, and they will tell you, well, you know, that's done by mobile phone or calculator. That's an ancient tool. The answer is actually, we added this to the curriculum because it was useful three, four hundred years ago when people used those tools to measure the size of the field. And since then, we have not unable to remove it, but we have added lots of things. Every day there comes a new kind of thing, and that it's putting the pressure on teachers and students to move through stuff without having the time to actually learn deep conceptual understanding. The highest performing education systems, if you go to a you know, classroom there, the students will work on one problem in an hour, not 16 or 17 problems like in a British classroom. No. Yeah, I saw a, a math lesson in a Shanghai primary school and the kids were learning how to use a number line to express fractions which I can't remember doing myself at school, but I'm sure I did at some point. And it was incredible to see the way that they approached it using this mastery learning model. The lesson was only 35 minutes long in the first place. The teacher seemed like a real expert. She planned every minute of what was going on. And then the children had these opportunities to learn individually, in pairs, in groups of four. And they were learning the same piece of content, but from different dimensions. So using these different approaches, so like they were representing it in drawings, they were using it with um, little tokens, they were sort of counting it up, they were writing some things down, and they solved a problem at the end. And I was just amazed at the number of different techniques, the number of opportunities to master the same concept that I saw in one lesson. And it felt different to, to math classes that I'd I'd known and been into. So that, the learning would be very secure because you'd approached it from all these different... Exactly. Sides. On the issue of... Oh, sorry, Andres. I just want to move us along to talk about uh, and the concept of learning, really. I think the Guardian supporters, Emma and Will, um, who we heard from earlier, both referred to how we now have a greater knowledge of how people learn. Mm -hmm. And Alex, in your book, you say, most schools today are not teaching kids how to learn. We lack a common understanding of what education is and what purpose it serves. That's a um, rather huge thing to say. <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that, first of all, 
we're beginning to understand a huge amount about how the brain works. So many of these things have actually existed in psychology for a long time. But the field of education, I think, is so full of a glut of different learning theories and approaches. There are hundreds of them. But it's very hard, as a, definitely as a beginning teacher or as a teacher perhaps at all, given the limited amount of time that teachers in England, for example, have to renew their practice, given all the other pressures that they have on them. You sort of get this opportunity at the beginning of your career to learn a, about a bunch of learning theories. And then you're just in the day-to-day life of being a teacher, which is incredibly overwhelming. You're always busy. And so you have this knowledge. I remember... Um, famously being taught about the you know the theory of multiple intelligences that was the big thing that I was taught about in my teacher training and that was a theory that you know was decades old already by the time it came into my head and then I was going into the classroom and it's since been sort of widely disproved or discredited you know the way that it's being used in schools so I think that what you see in a classroom is teachers that have an appetite obviously to think about how kids learn but are are learning more from their own practice it's more like a it's a craft you begin to learn how kids learn by experiencing that um, in the classroom but actually there are some like very concrete lessons that we can draw on for example mastery learning like in Shanghai that's been proven by the psychologist Ben Bloom to be a really great way of mastering domain specific skills and knowledge but actually the way it has to be done is very specific so it's also easy to apply that psychological insight about mastery learning and deliberate practice ineffectively to feel like you're doing but not really to be doing it and I think that when we think about our practice as teachers often we think about theories of learning that are maybe political or sociological but not as many of them which are practical or to do with cognitive development of of, of children I think they're all important by the way but I think we could add to our political sense and our social sense a sense of how kids develop cognitively and incorporate that into our practices incorporating things like the use of deliberate practice for example or understanding that in order to grow the creativity of kids it's not just about deliberate practice and getting really good at things over 10,000 hours of working through something but also the research shows that it matters that at the beginning that you have what psychologists call a romance stage where you sort of fall in love with what you're doing and that's characterized by play and experimentation and freedom um, to mess around with your subjects so I think there are a small amount of these insights that we could more easily apply in our practice quite usefully. We live in a fascinating time where we have insights from brain research on how students learn, where we have technologies where we can mobilize and share learning and also build more interesting and engaging learning environments but The point really is when you look to uh, Shanghai, it's not that the government now says, here's brain research, you know, train your teachers, then put them in the classroom, apply brain research, which again would put a pipeline of 20 years into the process. They actually do this among themselves. You know, teachers spend a lot of time. They have a digital platform where teachers share their lesson plans and projects and ideas. And actually, they combine this with reputational metrics. So the more other teachers are going to download your lessons, use your lessons, improve your lessons, the more popular you become in the system. And at the end of the school year, your principal will not only ask you, you know, how did you teach your own children, but actually what contribution did you make to the profession? How did you work with other teachers to actually use brain research to improve learning? They, this is the way how they scale innovation immensely. Like uh, when there is a new discovery from whether it's neuroscience or other, it's getting immediately taken up because people have an incentive to look outward not to look inward to their classroom, but everything is about sharing knowledge, mobilization. So I think that's the most interesting aspect. We have the tools, but actually if we have a very atomistic culture where teachers are in four walls in the classroom, 
those tools will not not help really no. it's funny actually i talk, i spoke to a teacher the other day she's just started in secondary teaching and like many quite disheartened early on and she said i feel as if i'm in a completely closed culture i'm in this school and i'm not connected to anything that's going on out there and also i think it relates to your very important point about giving teachers time time to think time to reflect time to learn and obviously the research is moving very fast and i don't know how this fits into initial teacher education or continuous professional development both of which have always seem to be very important but clearly teachers need time in the week in order to be thinking about these things and, and talking about them yeah to steal a, a point that andreas makes um i've heard him make before the teaching profession is one of the most highly educated workforces that exists within a society and we take these highly educated people who are amazing learners and then in England and in many parts mm. of the world, we don't give them any time mm. to learn, mm. Mm. which seems like a terrible waste of all of that incredible potential that we have existing within the system. And when you do give that potential, I saw an incredible teacher in Finland who I met, a guy called Pekka Peora, and he's very famous in Finland. In his classroom, he basically, most recently I turned up and saw him, he had created these amazing group activities and he was using smartphone technology to get kids to beam in answers and then these kids were teaching each other. But essentially he'd spent time reading about how everything that Google had learnt about making the most successful teams at Google, like really good psychological research, you know, with a bit of a pop psychology element to it. And then he was applying these lessons in how he set up the, the scenarios in his classroom. So he did some amazing things. So for example, first of all, he had a kind of flipped classroom so he would give all of the kids at the beginning of the year all of the learning materials they needed all of the online resources all of the tests they had to do all of the answers to the tests and then he saw it as his role as coaching them individually and together on their abilities of as learners so he would coach them in their ability to persevere or to cooperate or to imagine or to create and he'd got that because he had time in his professional life to do that reading to devise these new approaches and then to test them out in his classroom and then sitting around at lunchtime with the other teachers in the Finnish school canteen they were just chatting about approaches to learning in their class and they were talking about and that's what I had imagined teaching would be like I think when I became a teacher in England but really we were grabbing you know chicken drumstick from the canteen then like running off to do a detention or host a GCSE thing and I think you just need that time for the profession. But also the, the Finnish teacher you talk about had the most enormous freedom in order to pursue learning in the way that he thought best and, and within a big time framework whereas from reading what you said about your own experience as a teacher you, you just had to follow things in a very sort of rigid way so it's not just about time it's, it's about genuine autonomy and freedom and not being tied to a test culture which yeah i think that the solution is about reframing the career whether that's about by setting up more time for people or creating different experiences people have allowing people to really develop their professionalism i mean i'm going to say it again i think teaching literally is the most important job that anyone will do in the future um particularly as we outsource other aspects of our economy to robots and machines um it's going to be all about people to people interactions and teachers are at the heart of that um i went to some places where in the u.s as well as in finland where teacher careers have been structured in such a way that it is that compelling inspiring satisfying provocative rewarding profession that it ought to be everywhere for example i went to this place called high tech high and it's a school in san diego um set up 
initially by uh, a group of parents who wanted schools that sort of better fit the needs of the 21st century that their kids were going to have to face. And there they have, every time they put it, have a teaching vacancy there, they have 1,500 applications for each vacancy that they have on their teaching staff. And you, when you go there, you understand why that's the case. So they roughly split the kids' learning up there into two chunks about half the time they spend doing what we would sort of see as relatively traditional type learning their English and their math and their science and the other half of their time all of the school year they spend on these big interdisciplinary projects so I went into this one classroom and they, they do these projects for a whole semester for them, you know multiple weeks on end I went into this one classroom and these kids are about 15 or 16 years old. And in a single class, the teacher had sort of got them split up into different groups. The kids who were sort of into science and maths were experimenting with making biodegradable seed pods. I'll explain what those are in a second. And then there was another group, the kind of humanities kids who were into this, who were scripting and planning the filming of a documentary. And there was a third group who were the kind of tech kids, and they were building their own drones, completely from scratch, you know, all of the electronics, all of the hardware. And they were going to end this semester this project they were doing by taking a five-day excursion into the california wilderness together as a class they were going to fly these drones over a national park to uh, film how plant life had been degraded by drought and they were going to use the seed pods to replenish those ones that were missing and make a documentary of the whole thing they were going to put on youtube afterwards um, to raise awareness of environmental issues but the being a teacher in that school just seemed like one of the best jobs that you could do in life. It was amazing, and the teachers were incredibly happy, and they would sit down with the kids and devise these projects, and then kids would come from other classes who needed to access their subject knowledge and say, well, how do you do this? I'm puzzling over this problem. But they created this incredible culture within the school where the teachers were completely trusted autonomous professionals. They sort of ripped up the curriculum. These projects, kids at the end get a one or a zero. Either you did it or you didn't do it, and you sort of learn as you go along. And I think that this kind of collegial atmosphere they created amongst the teachers they all trusted one another to develop these great projects they all trusted one another to teach each other's kids the kids by the way do fantastically well they all go on to these top universities afterwards to study science subjects so i think it's about these what is it you're saying about the role of teacher and, and just just to add quickly they have on the side of the school we've now got a graduate school of education so it's attached to high tech high so now hundreds of teachers come every year to learn about the high tech, high approach in the model. And they have to come in groups of five. So a head teacher will come, maybe a head of department and a few teachers. And they'll come and they'll work across the course of a year in their own schools on a particular project that's designed to turn around their approach to teaching, uh, for example. And they'll come back to high tech high every couple of months for a few days of, of learning in this big group of, of 100. So for me, it's about repurposing the, the careers that teachers experience using their knowledge and expertise really well that's how I think we can begin to um, re-elevate the status of teaching in our society. Can, can I just say I was laughing while you were, I was filled with envy for the teachers and the students but I was just thinking if in, you had in this country teachers who ripped up the curriculum and got a group of students to make a drone and fly over I mean a they'd all be imprisoned and secondly the Daily Mail would be go to to town on them but that the more the more important point is that actually a lot of what you say in your book which is why I love it so much reminds me of what is is always disparaged here is progressive education and there, there's such a history of this kind of approach within our own system and it's an institutional memory that is fading under the weight of this more standardized um, arid approach which we now recognize is a problem and so I would I 
always want to say to people who have a different generation that you are, Alex, please, please sort of uncover at some point when you have a spare afternoon the kind of the, the, the history that's buried within this country about exactly this sort of approach. You're listening to We Need to Talk About Education. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Andreas, I want you to talk to us about the PISA tests. Um, Remind us what these tests measure um, and how you'd like to see this data ideally being used. Yeah, you know, PISA was uh, designed as a tool to look outwards, help systems to sort of see themselves in a mirror of what other countries achieve or not achieve. And, you know, the reason we talk about Finland is because PISA revealed that Finland was doing really well. One approach that we took very deliberately in PISA that we didn't test, we don't put much focus on whether students can reproduce what they've learned. No, because the modern world no longer rewards you just for what you know. Google knows everything really today. The world rewards you for what you can do with what you know. So we actually put a great emphasis on whether students can think creatively, apply their knowledge creatively in novel situation, extrapolate from what they know. So that was a deliberate choice that we made, the idea of competency as opposed to just knowledge reproduction, which actually hurts some countries. Now, if I look, for example, at results from the you know, Czech Republic or the Russian Federation, if I would give them a knowledge test, they would come out as one of the top performing systems. And they do on other international tests, and they come quite poorly out on PISA. So that approach was a kind of deliberate choice because we know that the world is moving into this, basically. And the advent of artificial intelligence should push us to think much harder what it means to be human and what are the kind of cognitive, social, emotional skills that actually empower us, enable us today. So we made that choice on the what question. We made another choice on the how question, and that is we always work with samples of schools. And people ask us, you know, why don't you test every class from every school? And the answer is, well, you know, then it ends up, you know, who's best, who's who's not so good. 
And uh, we took samples to get a picture of the overall approach across countries. And so it's not something where a school can know am I better than my neighboring school. Designed as a low-stakes test. That's very deliberate choice as well, so that the stakes for individuals, for students, there's no consequence. For schools, there's no consequence. It's really an idea. And I'm not interested in finding out, you know, what can students do under the maximum degree of pressure. The interest in PISA is how can students engage with tasks in an authentic kind of situation. And uh, the third important aspect is that we connected what students can do and learn with their attitudes towards learning and the social environment. Uh, we have collected data from teachers, from school leaders, from systems. That gives us an understanding of the factors that are associated with learning. For example, we can see that in some countries, social background of students and learning outcomes are very strongly connected. And some people think that's natural, that's always going to happen. But then we see other countries where actually even the most disadvantaged children do amazingly well. Mm -hmm. So I think this connection, this integration of different data sources has made it a tool to uh, develop insights. One thing that we're just beginning to do is, and you know, often when you talk about assessment, you think, oh, this is something that takes away time from learning. You know, we see sort of learning and assessment as sort of being in conflict with each other. But through technology these days, we can actually not only see whether students get the answer right, but we actually can see how they get to an answer. And that kind of knowledge that modern assessment can generate about the learning process is one that can transform pedagogical practice. It can help you know, students learn better, teachers teach better in schools to actually look into you know, why are some students not learning best. On the issue of testing that you raised there, Melissa, I'm interested in how we give more support to children who are working at different levels and different speeds. Lydia's question earlier about the effects and the, the limits of standardised testing and Guardian supporter Rob also mirrored this. He asked, how will we continue to judge and compare schools in areas of deprivation to national or regional average that really enable success for children in schools in deprived areas? And how do you think inclusive, honest and determined schools really compete with schools who are able to pick and choose their school population and should they really have to do that? No. <laughs> and, and in a way this connects to PISA, not to blame Andreas and PISA, which has been a very interesting test. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting you talk about the importance of low-stakes testing within the PISA system, but in terms of how PISA has been interpreted within our, our national culture, it's become an amazingly high-stakes stakes event you know how are we doing in PISA and it it definitely promoted a lot of changes in our school system as interpreted by a particular government and one of those changes was increased testing so that uh, you now have tests in early years of primary and you have SATs at the end of primary and then you have GCSEs and you have A-levels and one way of looking at that, the official way of looking at that, is that, you know, it's higher standards and it's good to get everybody through and you will get a better system out of it. My way of looking at it, and I think probably the way of most people who are working in the system, is that it's a system of discouragement and a system of failure and also a system of discrimination is a strong word, but definitely differentiation between students of different social backgrounds and I'm sure Andreas will confirm that our system social background plays a big part in in results and that's partly to do with the very segregated system we have generally so I think I think we've got it wrong and I think standardized testing doesn't help 
And I think it comes back to these more creative ideas that we were having about changing the system so that there could more room for teachers to exercise autonomy, more room for teachers to learn, more room for individual attention to learners and particularly special needs learners, which was one of the examples that you had at the beginning, a Guardian member. You know, special needs funding has been slashed. It's now almost a crisis in our system. But we've never been very good at this matter of looking at students in an individual way and helping them to progress and supporting them to progress as they need to. So we've become very sort of cohort-obsessed. And I, I don't think it's the best way that we could do it. What about Will's question on the future of assessment in the curriculum for 14 to 16-year-olds? Yeah, I believe that assessment is an essential function, a part of improvement. Constant diagnosis, constant assessment is really we need to understand where we are, how we can improve. Teachers need to have a good picture of how students learn differently. And uh, the future of assessment is about not doing this at any single point in time under very high stakes, but actually building continuous forms of assessment, also bridging the classroom level with the school level, with the system level, that constant where, for example, children from disadvantaged backgrounds are falling behind, how we then can align resources with needs. That is all through assessment. And this is where technology is really leading us to a breakthrough. In the past, you'd assess students on a kind of simple multiple-choice test because it was cheap to do. Today, we can use digital portfolio-based assessment that constantly track and um, monitor what students do. And it also helps us. Uh, the, the biggest trap that current assessment often has is that we sacrifice validity gains for efficiency gains. Now we use multiple choice tasks because they're cheap to administer. And we forget that we test then the kind of things that are easy to measure rather than the one that are important to understand. Or we prioritize reliability over relevance. You know, you had a minister of education here who lost her job because the exam got contested. Uh, but no minister lost their job because the exam tested things that were not relevant. Sort of society is always geared towards efficiency, reliability. And the future of assessment will allow us to get out of those paradigms because it will integrate the process of learning and assessment. Students are going to see immediately where you know things are not correct or where they can improve. Teachers are going to have that picture. And I think the moment assessment and learning really become integrated, uh, we can lose all fear of assessment as well. But one quality <laughs> is missing in order for that to happen, which is trust. Trust of the professional yeah. and trust <coughs> of the learner. And yeah. that's definitely missing in our current system. Yeah. Assessment actually should never be a tool of control. It should always be a tool for, you know, generating insights, gen supporting improvement, aligning resources with needs. And that's actually an interesting point as well at the student level. You know, people say, you know, well, England tests so much that, you know, it's putting a lot of pressure on students. We looked into test anxiety with PISA and we found actually no relationship between the frequency and testing and student anxiety. The anxiety comes when you look at, for example, the Netherlands or even Finland, uh, they test pretty much the same at the same rate, but students feel a much higher degree of, of teacher support. They basically feel, well, you know, if I don't do things well, my teacher's going to help me and I'm going to improve. They see the diagnostic power of assessment. They don't see this as a kind of high-stakes gateway. No. Okay, let's move on and bring in Guardian supporter Phoebe and the importance of play. I'm Phoebe Franklin and I'm a childminder. I think the current primary curriculum, certainly in the early years, comes from the good intentions of improving children's literacy and numeracy, but uh, fails at their understanding on what children really need to thrive. 
at this age, they're learning about their bodies. They're learning about how to socialize with each other. They're learning the rules of play. I think play-based learning is the optimistic way that kids can really, really learn to work together. You know, we talk about the benefits of teaching them to work in teams, to bond in groups, to interact with each other. We uh, talk about how children should be robust, how they should be able to roll with the punches and be uh, mentally strong. And I think a lot of the problems are probably founded here in the early years when they're not given the confidence to actually follow their own whims and actually learn to work with other children. What we're teaching them is shapes on the page, shapes on the board. And I worry we're actually neglecting an important part of their development in favour of a structured curriculum. Can we talk a little bit about the value of arts and the importance of play in our education system? I I think it's pretty straightforwardly established that arts have been diminished within the secondary curriculum, partly because there was the introduction and sort of soon after the coalition government came in of the EBAC, which was a measure of sort of traditional subjects. And it was interesting, you said, Andreas, about we should stop looking at what we used to to learn and look into the future. But actually, the EBAC, some people were able to make the argument that this very much mimicked the grammar school curriculum of 1902, which is is a, a long time ago. But the EBAC measure meant that schools that were under pressure, and particularly schools that were in more deprived areas where it was harder to get children to come up to that level, that meant they had to drop something from the curriculum and so there's been quite a cutback in drama music and arts it's also been accepted that that is a pity and wrong and what's also emerged is that private education which of course has a lot more resources a lot smaller classes we can talk about smaller classes later if you like is able to continue with this drama music and and arts and therefore is yet another advantage that they're able to add that's slightly different from the play point but obviously it's all connected in this if you know play is a very important part of of learning and there are interesting experiments around the world. I mean, you must know about the Reggio Emilia in in Italy. I don't think you mentioned it in your book, Alex, but you do mention something interesting in in an English school where the teacher talks about the importance of risk and discovery in the early years. Mm. Well, this this is real dynamite within our own current political discourse where everything is about results and certainty and accountability. So we're going to have to learn to to change our language and to take more risks with the way we talk about learning if we're going to get our education system right. When we think about the future and the growing importance of people's imagination, people's capacity to to think creatively, surely the arts and music have a bigger role to play, but we shouldn't reduce creativity to any school subject. You'd want to see a lot more creative thinking being developed in mathematics, in science, in history, in any school subject. I I, I do think that's going to be very, very important. To, and what it what it means, if you want, you know, learners to be creative, you have to give them room to experiment, to try things out. And when they try things out, they're going to make mistakes. How we tolerate mistakes and how people grow with mistakes will be actually highly determinative of how creative our teaching is. And students will not become creative if they don't see their teachers as creative designers. I think but creativity, I would not link it to any school subject, but as an approach, really. No. Yeah, I'm just um, picking up that I completely agree. And I like the idea that the, the caller connected this to early child development and the importance of play there. One of the places I went to on my travels was the MIT Media Lab. Mm. And that 
is it has a division there so essentially the MIT Media Lab is this amazing institution it is where a ton of things that we use in our daily lives were invented they invented uh, the ink in Kindles they invented that they invented GPS touchscreens were invented there Guitar Hero was invented there um, and it's sort of this hive of creativity but cross-disciplinary creativity so like Andreas is saying it's not just about the creative arts which are also very important by the way all of these mm. uh, groups in the MIT Media Lab have artists within them but it's also about science it's also about um, tech it's also about you know the way that we structure our societies is about culture. Um, but then they have something called lifelong kindergarten. So they basically try to apply the principles of early childhood learning, the best approaches to early childhood development, to these groups of essentially grown-up, high-level scientists. And they come together in these research groups, and the groups have ridiculous names like the opera of the future or social computing. Um, and they come together, they're cross-disciplinary, There'll be maybe an artist, a computer scientist, a sculptor. They'll come together in a group. And then they have three years of funding to just do whatever they can come up with. It's like the perfect conditions for creativity. The success criteria at the MIT Media Lab, they didn't have success criteria for a long time. But for these research groups now are, first of all, by the end of those three years, do you have a project that has some real world purpose? Secondly, does the thing that you've produced work? And thirdly, is it magic? And like, this is an amazing environment to set for, for, for people to, to be creative. They're not having to answer to any particular success criteria. And it really, really works. Mm. They've produced all this incredible stuff. It also happens to be home of things like Lego Mindstorms and Scratch, which is this big online computer uh, community that's been invented for kids. And I think it's because they've applied so well the principles of creative learning, which involves freedom, you need to have lots of time, freedom to, to imagine. You need to be able to experiment and to fail without there being sanctions or, or anything coming from that. You need to have as many connections with others and other people's ideas as possible. Creativity is very associative. So it's all about making connections between, between disciplines. Um, and then you need to have, you know, I guess, some funding to sort of support that. You need to have a sense of purpose that you really love what you're doing, that romance stage that we were talking about before. And so they've perfectly set that up. Now, of course, our schools at the moment don't have so many of those spaces. Perhaps we do in early childhood centres, although less and less in England with yeah. the advent of like, this focus on literacy, primary schools somewhat, but secondary schools, particularly with the diminishing of arts, um, the presence of arts in, 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 in sorry, English classrooms, we're seeing the space for creativity being pulled out of schools and sort of pushed into what you do in your free time at home. And that, of course, then massively favours people who have more resources to invest in those types of things. So we need to claw back time in the school day in every subject to create this space to be creative. Yeah, and if we start to sort of call those things extracurricular activities, we send a message. You know, this isn't about schooling. This is about something else and nice to have. And I think it's very, very important to get this right. About, you know, the, the early years, I agree with the importance as well, but I do think we need to be very conscious not to make sort of the last three years that children have a misery as well by sort of pushing down schooling, which is a temptation. You know, if we didn't solve the problem at school, let's do it one year earlier. Uh, again, neuroscience tells us the early years are the moment where social skills, emotional qualities really develop. And then we need to be much more careful about what do children learn best at what age and how can we support that with the right tools and instruments. Let's hear now from our final Guardian supporter. Here's Alex on Enacting Change. I'm Alex Bell, Director of PortlandEducation.co.uk. What's the best way to get the people who run schools to stop doing the things that no longer work in meeting the needs of the future 
but that are familiar and popular and start doing the things that will meet the needs of the future but aren't yet familiar or popular. Who wants to start, Melissa? Well, I suppose my thought arising from that very interesting and well-phrased question (laughs) is that the people who run schools in England are not in charge of how education is framed. So I would say that we need to have a national conversation about what we're doing, what we're doing wrong, and how we can start to draw on the kind of evidence that Andreas is bringing to the table and the exciting examples that Alex is bringing to the table to to do things differently. It's bound to be a political conversation in that you can't keep politics out of it, but it needs to be a much broader conversation than we've had over the last nine years, over the last 20 years. We have to stop individual politicians with their prejudices and the particular books that they love coming to our system and making another short-term change which doesn't take it in the right direction and do something different. You know, I think it takes courage and leadership to prepare for the future and uh, it also means taking people on board, teachers first of all, but also parents. If we can't see the future, we're going to be afraid of the future. And if uh, if if parents see the future through their children's work without understanding it themselves, I think you have lost as a school. So I do think schools needed to be a much better job in connecting with society and helping people understand the future, the future of knowledge, the future of skills. And I think then, you know, you'll get people on board. So I think three things. I don't know how to enact them yet, but this is the work of all of us, I think, that we're all engaged in every day. And I'm sure all of the Guardian members are who are listening to the podcast. I think, first of all, ideas. We somehow need to adjust the ideas that govern how we all think about education and schools. And there exists a space that's been opened up a little bit by things like PISA to talk about education, to focus on learning. There's certainly already a conversation happening. So how do we change the ideas that inform that conversation? So they're about primarily what kids should be learning and how best they learn, and then how we support teachers to make that learning happen, rather than we always get sucked into the political, which is very important. And I think we should have those conversations, but we need to also carve out space for understanding learning. Secondly, I think the most important people in all of this are teachers. We need to support teachers in a way that frees up their time, creates space for them to build the kind of professional communities which will allow them to enact change, which they're very capable of doing uh, by themselves, but often held back from doing, I think, by the structures of the system. And then finally, the system itself, I completely agree that we need to have a more coherent conversation between schools between parents between civil society about what education is for about what place it holds in our society and what role it plays in preparing us for the future and you can look at interesting things like the citizen assembly which they used in ireland around the abortion debate could we have some civil society mechanisms for having those types of debates to inform then what schools do and how we structure our system That was such a fascinating um, discussion. I want to thank everyone on our panel for joining us today. And of course, thank you to all the Guardian supporters who contributed with so many fascinating questions and insights. Do keep an eye out for our next podcast call out in a couple of weeks. And if you'd like to email us with your thoughts in the meantime on what we should tackle next, please do so at weneedtotalkaboutattheguardian.com. I'm Lee Glendening and We Need to Talk About Education was produced by Stuart Silver. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.